You're listening to Macro Sunday, hosted by Andreas Steno. Welcome to Macro Sunday. My name is Andreas Steno. I'm the founder and CEO of Steno Research. And this is your weekly independent macro podcast with hot takes on everything from geopolitics to macro strategy. This week, we're going to talk about coups, peace talks, steeper interest rate curves, and the marvelous Bank of Japan. And um, remember, as a broad disclaimer before we get going here, that our trade ideas may be... Sometimes it may be good, sometimes it may be shit. <laughs> you got to love Gennaro Gattuso. We've had a lot of questions on who's saying this, and it's um, the former AC Milan midfielder. Gennaro Gattuso. You're better at pronouncing this, Mikkel. I think it was, that was quite spot on, I think. <laughs> um, welcome to the show, Mikkel Rosenwald. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Uh, head of uh, geopolitics here at Steno Research. And uh, we also have Emil uh, Müller, head of research here at Steno Research with us. Good to see you, Emil. Yep. Cheers. Likewise. Um, guys, it's been a completely bizarre week in many ways, uh, both in geopolitics <laughs> and in uh, macroeconomics. And... Um, I guess we have a lot of things to discuss, um, also in relation to how markets have digested all of these events. But I'd like to start with the marvelous Bank of Japan. Um, mm. We uh, we released a, a special podcast on the topic of Bank of Japan a week ago uh, after the decision um to, to sort of move the needle on the yield curve control in Japan to now 1% yeah. uh, in the 10-year point uh, of the Japanese uh, uh, government bond curve. But we've had uh, quite some back and forth price action in Japanese markets over the past week here, Emil, uh, and the Bank of Japan very involved in, in, in yeah. the training, so to speak. So, so what yeah. do you make of, of Japanese markets at, at this juncture now that we have sort of a week of empirical evidence of, of this new regime? Yeah, still early days. Let, let, let's start mm. there. But it, it's been it's been, uh, it's been been volatile, to say the least. Um, and I think what sort of is my takeaway here is um, you are not... Uh, on the safe side in case you go short in Japanese government bonds no. because the Bank of Japan will intervene and it will take time before markets will be capable of pushing on the 1% uh, yield level. That's sort of my my main takeaway. That means that, that uh, we will probably see a gradual tightening of financial conditions in Japan and that might be a bit of a problem uh, if inflationary pressures in in uh, Japan keeps keeps at the level that they, that they are currently. So that's that's a bit of something to watch. We might have to see uh, uh, you know uh, more uh, tightening of monetary conditions in case things go a bit bit beyond what they expected. Mm. So yeah, we obviously have a relatively new governor of yeah. the Bank of Japan. Yeah. Kasu Ueda, <laughs> something like that, <laughs> and um, he he's um, he, he's an academic. Yeah. Um, he spent plus twenty years at uh, the Tokyo University. Yeah. But when he visited Sintra in Portugal, mm. just three four weeks back, um, attending the uh, ECB uh, yearly conference in Portugal, uh. Uh. he actually surprised by being a truly funny guy. So let's listen to a soundbite from Sintra with Kazuo Ueda. Uh, well, see, we haven't had any 
serious monetary tightening for three decades. So in terms of that, uh, the lag in the effects of monetary policy could be at least 25 years. <laughs> this is just an amazing comment from, uh, from Weda here, um, referring to that they, they had a panel discussion on how um, monetary policy sort of impacts the real economy with, with time lags. And yeah. he sort of made the joke that uh, the time lag may be as long as 25 or 30 years in Japan, right? Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the question here, Emil, is mm. uh, now that we see let's call it the very, very first signs of normalization of the Bank of Japan yeah. policy. Uh, do you think there is a time lag from, from this decision last week until we actually see the effects on, on the Japanese economy here? The thing is, the Japanese economy is so unique. Mm. And we are definitely in uncharted territory here. We don't have any historical precedent for it really to rely on. No. So uh, my, my, my takeaway is, is, is more that... They, I think, I think they, they were really clever in keeping their new regime flexible. And I think they're really they're, they're quite humble about where they are, um, but still I think I think um, I mean with if energy and commodities keep pushing up now we've seen a bit of retracement, but mm. if that really starts to 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 gather steam, I think there will be in, I think they will perhaps need to do more, or at least step up on the rhetoric. Um, mm. So so that's sort of the fence I'm on right now, and I think that's 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 where they are as well. Yeah, I uh, I released that article uh, last week. Yeah on the flow seen in the Japanese yen and in the JGB market post this decision taken by Bank of Japan. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that you can that you can actually get the cocktail of a weaker Japanese yen and a steeper yield curve in Japan yeah. with slightly higher 10-year bond yields at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I think it requires a bit of explanation um, since it is sort of an odd cocktail. So if we look at the flows right now, um, it is relatively clear to me that um, the foreign fixed income market is mm. sort of close territory for for most uh, Japanese life and, and, and pension funds. Mm. As a consequence of inverted curves yeah. in the US and in Europe, mm. paired with a steeper curve in Japan now. Mm. Um, I've traveled Japan uh, and Asia several times selling fixed income products, mainly from Scandinavia. Yeah. And they have a very, very strict strict fixed income mandate, meaning that they have to hedge, mm. uh, say, 10 or 30-year uh, bonds with either a three, six, nine-month rolling FX hedge. Yeah. Uh, and that is the exact reason why an inverted curve in the West and a steep curve in Japan means that the net-net yeah. interest rate or the running yield carry yeah. uh, on a US treasury or a bund yeah. is in extreme negative territory yeah. seen from a Japanese perspective. Yeah, Japan and that, you end a pickup, right? Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah, yeah. and that's uh, essentially something that um, will only grow worse given uh, the decision taken by a Bank of Japan. So it's close territory to buy something abroad. Yeah, But they do not repatriate fixed income flows to any major extent either. Mm. Um, the reason being that Bank of Japan is still crowding out um, investments in local bonds. Mm. Uh, so they cannot repatriate floats to any yeah. large extent. Uh, I had a look at Bank of Japan purchase volumes through 23 so far relative to net issuance of local JGBs. And just to take the most extreme example, in January... Bank of Japan bought roughly 15 trillion. <laughs> I'm almost getting blindfolded when I watch a chart like this. Uh, I have it right in front of me here. Uh, 15 trillion Japanese yen worth of government bonds through January relative to 
say, a tenth of that in net-net issuance. Uh, now, in June, July, they're probably buying roughly the same uh, as the net issuance of JDBs, roughly, okay. meaning that you can still not gain market shares as a local life and pension fund no. so, because the Bank of Japan buys at least yeah. what it's entitled to, so to speak. Yeah. Um, that means that you cannot repatriate a lot of flows. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you don't get that positive flow into Japanese yens. Mm. But at the same time, Bank of Japan keeps printing. Um, and the Federal Reserve is not printing. Mm. The European Central Bank is not printing. Rather, the contrary, right? Mm. Uh, so they debase the Japanese yen versus peers, um, yeah. even in a scenario where they allow the yield curve to steepen a bit. Yeah, but I think you must acknowledge that... the the predicament that they're in, there aren't any easy policy changes you can adopt here. You must accept some yeah, yeah, yeah. trade-offs. I mean, and I think in the grand scheme of things, this is not a bad move from them. I think, I actually think it's it's, it's rather smart and they did it unanticipatedly. Like, mm. I mean, markets were sort of uh, back and forth about it, but yet they caught everyone by surprise, mm. right? Even us. <laughs> it, it grieves me to say. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, but but uh, yeah, for financial markets, uh, I, it's it's not really uh, it's not uh, the end of the world. As of yet. No, no, <laughs> mm. certainly not. No. Um, there was a bit of speculation ahead of of this decision, Michael, whether Japanese politics could uh, could impact this decision from Bank of Japan. I think it was uh, a little more than a month ago we we had the first um, story out suggesting that we could be faced with snap elections in Japan uh, towards the end of the year. We haven't gotten the confirmation yet. So at anything from, from the Japanese polit, uh, po political side that is worth mentioning in, in regards to this. The, the interesting thing is here is, is whether this becomes a, a true political issue because oh. it's the, the, this has been a, a, a sort of a fixed strategy for many years. It hasn't really been a political issue. It might be now. Oh. Uh, uh, um, and it, it, it might be sort of a, an indicator of, 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 of more societal changes uh, uh, in Japan. So we're still waiting for that. As of now, no, no, no elections are called. So, so they're, they're, um, the political landscape around this is, is, is still relatively stable. But it's yeah. going to be really interesting to follow. Indeed, Michael. And um, <laughs> getting to uh, Western soil, uh, Emil. Yeah. Um, it goes without saying that this decision from Bank of Japan impacts global bond markets, yeah. um, mainly via the channel of, of low appetite or low incentives to buy foreign fixed income yeah. for Japanese life and pension funds. Yeah. And over the past week, we've had uh, the release of the quarterly refunding report from the U.S. Treasury. Um, and it is relatively evident that they are now forced to increase the duration profile mm. of their issuance. Yeah. yeah, They are running close to the sort of self-imposed cap of 20% of the outstanding debt being issued in bills, yeah. um, meaning that they now have to issue coupons. Um, yeah. What do you make of this duration profile given the decision from Bank of Japan, given market positioning, etc.? Is this the perfect storm for it? A steepener, basically. Yeah. Well, I, I wrote a piece last week and I said that, and that was in the wake of, of the Bank of Japan decision, that the only thing that I was really confident about coming into to this week was we would see a steepener in the US yield curve. And uh, here we are. That's <laughs> basically only the only thing that has written in, 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 in financial markets. Um, I think when, when, you're, when you're treasurer in the US, um, you sort of have a responsibility to 
you, you you can't you can't you you can't really speculate in in changing the duration profile. Uh, in Not terms too of, much, at least. No, because yeah. then you 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 fuel volatility, right? Mm. And that ends up being uh, you know a, a loose horse you don't want to try to catch up again. So um, I think it was. I, I'm not particularly surprised that we saw additional coupons because the fiscal uh, landscape in the US is as it is. <laughs> and uh, I'm not the only one who's a bit skeptical on on the trajectory and and uh, the sustainability. Not to mention of of the current uh, fiscal um, fiscal regime. Um, so uh, I think. All in all, it's it's yeah, it's pain on the long end, and probably in in certain areas of risk assets as well. That's that's my that's yeah. my main takeaway. And a few highlights from that quarterly refunding report, yeah. Emil. Um, the U.S. Treasury now intent on increasing the cash balance mm. to seven hundred and fifty billion yeah. towards the end of the year. Uh, so this is the pool of cash that they hold idle. No. at the Federal Reserve as sort of a war chest no. in case of emergency. Um, that is a couple of hundred billion more than uh, the current um, TGA level, mm. uh, meaning that they will have to withdraw a couple hundred of billions from yeah. the private sector before mm. New Year's. Yeah. The interesting thing here is that when they increase the duration profile of uh, the Treasury issuance alongside this uh, target of, of 750 billion worth of excess cash, yeah. They cannot. They can no longer rely on the so-called overnight reverse repo facility no. to counter the liquidity effects. The overnight reverse repo facility um, is a facility at the Federal Reserve, uh, and it is uh, designed to uh, be able to to take in uh, excess cash from, for example, money market funds not being able to find um, eligible bills to buy, okay. uh, and therefore, uh, during say the past four or five weeks here, uh, the load of uh, issuance in bills has basically just been absorbed by yep. this overnight reverse repo facility mm-hmm. as money market funds withdrew yep. money from the facility to buy bills. Yep. Now that they issue coupons, the money market funds can no longer within their mandate buy them. Nope. Uh, and therefore, you don't get that uh, same cushion uh, from uh, the overnight reverse repo facility from a liquidity perspective. Yep. I think that's potentially a game changer for risk assets. Uh, at least it is on the margin more negative yeah. um, from a liquidity perspective than one we've seen over the past month here. In short term, yeah. Yeah. So, interesting developments um, in uh, in the U.S. Treasury space. And yeah. um, is am I allowed to say that we double down on our uh, Stephen O'Case yeah. here? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think we uh, we get increasing confirmation that the Stephen O'Case is now on. Yeah. Um, and in relation to that, and I want to pick your brain, both your brain, Emil, and your brain, Mikkel, around sure. this topic, we've seen um, a downgrading of the U.S. credit rating uh, from Fitch this week, one of the credit yeah. rating agencies. <laughs> yeah. um, a bit more than a decade after the S&P yeah. downgraded the U.S., was it in 2011, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> Mikkel, first of all, uh, is this something that's on the radar politically in the no. U.S., this downgrade? No. They couldn't care less? No. It's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it used to be. It, yeah. it used to be some kind of symbol. You say, oh, this is embarrassing for the administration. But I was like, it's, it, it, it doesn't really affect the, the lives of ordinary people from, from, from a day-to-day basis. There are a lot bigger fishes to fry, for, <laughs> both for the president and the uh, aspiring president. So, 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 so no, this is, uh, I mean, the, the, area, the era of it's the economy stupid is, is definitely over. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the coming elections are going to be in, uh, f- 
about everything but the, the, the economy, basically. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is not going to be a political issue uh, as far as I see. Emil, a downgrade of uh, the US sovereign credit rating. Yeah. Does it make sense at all? Yes or no? <laughs> well, yes, but I think there's a lot of people in financial markets who got a bit, because obviously it doesn't affect market pricing. I mean, US treasuries are still the go-to safe haven in case, mm. uh, you know, the S hits the fan. Mm. Um, but I think it make it, I think if you zoom a bit out, I think it makes sense. You can't just be, if you are, uh, if you are a credit rater, just, you know, be completely indifferent to uh, to uh, declining um, um, uh, fiscal sustainability and mm. and what have you. So so no, I'm not I'm not particularly surprised. And I, I actually back in I think it was before summer when France received the exact same uh, the same medicine. Mm. I, I questioned whether why 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 don't we see that in the US? Mm. Um, and here we are. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I and I. Uh, on, on another note, it's really interesting about this cycle that it's the developed markets who keep getting um, slammed by the rating agencies while it's actually emerging markets who get upgraded. That's <laughs> As an emerging markets guy, I can tell you that's not the usual <laughs> usual thing you see come around. No. But um, yeah, here we are. It's it's certainly not. Mikkel, <laughs> mm, no. um, when, when we look at this uh, decision taken by the Fitz agency uh, to um, to downgrade U.S. debt. They um, they cite the political risk as the main reason to do so, um, and they um, they refer obviously to the ongoing political soap opera every single time they have to raise the debt ceiling. Mm. So, I mean, I'm I'm a markets guy, um, not an economist actually, mm. and. Uh, Judging from sort of the surface of this issue, I uh, I simply cannot imagine uh, a, a true default scenario for the U.S. Treasury. Uh, they they are in charge of printing their own currency. Yeah. Um, they still have uh, the status of being able to issue the reserve currency of the world. So the only way the U.S. can default is if politicians want it to happen. Yes. Yeah. And is that even? a feasible scenario that we can get a majority in Congress allowing it to happen. No, no. And I mean, I think logic, the logic is a little bit reverse here because what would happen with, with, with the US government debt if, if you didn't have a debt, a debt ceiling, if you didn't have these debates? I, I mean, they're, they're obviously yeah. a big stress factor both for the political and, and, and the economic sphere. But if you if you... If you had no limits on borrowing, you, they would just keep borrowing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so 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 I think it's uh, the logic is a little bit reversed there. It, you're never going to have a, a majority for defaulting uh, outright because there's so much is still d- dependent on the federal budget. But you will see ongoing discussions on what what should the role of government be, which is yeah. def- uh, essentially what the especially the the, the Repo- uh, Republicans are pushing. Mm. And, you're going to see more of that in the future, uh, and more of a debate between what's going to be the federal side of things, what's going to, uh, what, what are the states going to run? I think that's that's where the debate is going to be very much. Um, we would have that same very same debate in Europe if if the EU uh, um, issued debt. Yeah, 
Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Thank. They they actually do, but to to yeah, such yeah. a small extent that we don't care yet. Yeah. Um. But I can guarantee you, uh, sending live to you here from Copenhagen, that we will, yeah. <laughs> we, we will be on the streets oh, if yeah, that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, we we miss the UK and the in the European Union in that regard. So yeah. We had uh, s- someone to cooperate <laughs> with on these uh, topics. <laughs> um. Joking aside, here. Um. I think it's very, very interesting, Emil, mm. uh, with this steepening of the yield curve uh, in the U.S. Um, mm. based on the decision from Bank of Japan, based on uh, the new duration profile from the U.S. Treasury, uh, that um, I think we should have a discussion on high beta assets in that regards. Yeah. Uh, and with high beta assets, I mean crypto, I mean tech stocks, yeah. and the likes. Mm. Uh, so we saw towards the end of the week here, a clear spillover from that steepening of the curve to, for example, NASDAQ. Uh, So high long-term interest rates means um, a harder punishment from discounting rates, etc. So what do you make of the positioning in uh, both crypto, tech, and and high-beta assets at this juncture, given the discussion on the yield curve here? Well, I think they're a bit in peril. I I don't particularly like uh, high-beta assets at this this moment in time. I think we are are closely, uh, surely stepping into a... uh, a regime with more volatility mm. and you have basically only uh, headwinds from here from a structural basis that's how i see it and that's partially why we we swift to um to uh, the boomer trade right uh, <laughs> that's one of the reasons at least yeah. so no i wouldn't i i don't feel i don't i don't like risk assets at this juncture at all i i think uh, it gets me nervy even to talk about it <laughs> but um I, yeah yeah that that just that's that's where i'm stand <laughs> yeah so that, i mean these these Assets yeah. are typically very correlated to liquidity yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and uh, long-term uh, discount rates. Yeah. So obviously, it's one to watch. Um, yeah. And <laughs> I um, I watched a clip on Twitter this week uh. um, from what you probably label a Bitcoin maximalist. Oh, um, a guy supportive of Bitcoin, but not the rest of the crypto space. Mm. And this. Indian Bitcoin maximalist, he is fucking next level. <laughs> Pardon my French here. Okay. Um, so let's listen to this guy from Twitter and get back to the discussion. Fuck crypto. You don't need anxiety. Before you bought the bullshit fantasy coin, your life was good. But then you made some money and became greedy. Now the bullshit coin is fucked. And nobody can tell you when it is going to be unfucked. <laughs> Even the motherfucker who convinced you to buy the bullshit coin, who told you that it is going to be the next big thing, that motherfucker is nowhere to be found. You are on your own. And all you can do is cry about it in the shower. And hope and believe that your bullshit coin will go up in price again, so that you can sell it and make some money and buy some more and then get fucked all over again. <laughs> that is crypto. <laughs> this guy is simply next level. But to, to be honest, he's he's spot on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's completely spot on. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this, this is obviously during a week where uh, Sam Bankman-Fried apparently 
created a shit coin from yeah. <laughs> his house arrest um, <laughs> and managed to <laughs> cheat a lot of people again. Oh, I, yeah. I haven't looked into the details no, of not, that not case, to be honest, but... Um, it's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Is there, is there uh, a distinction between shit coins and bullshit coins that he's talking about? <laughs> be interesting to know i don't think so I, I, at <laughs> least i, I, I pulled them maybe. out in, yeah. in the same but yeah oh yeah and we've all known in, in in 2020 i mean I, I don't know about you guys but I, i've known like you know some you, you meet some distant relatives who has a son and he has a friend or something and he's made a fortune on speculating yeah. stuff he hasn't got a clue about and now now everything is just reversed it's yeah yeah, yeah. Back at McDonald's, you don't hear yeah. from them a lot. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but I, uh, <laughs> on a more serious note, right? This guy is obviously a Bitcoin maximalist. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the right label. Yeah. Um, I, I, th- I think there's a bit of merit to that view. Yeah. Um, oh, I agree. And uh, I, I, I personally look at Bitcoin as a high beta asset yeah. from a macro perspective. Yeah. I. Um, I mean, if you look at empirical correlations, um, it's pretty neatly tied to to what's ongoing in Nasdaq, um, yeah. just with a higher beta. Yeah. So, I mean, if if I'm all all in on risk, no. I, t- I tend to like Bitcoin as an asset class. Yeah. Um, and that's how I view it from from a macro perspective. I, agree, I don't you, think it's much can... more tricky than that. I mean. Yeah, and also it it has it has some institutional backing. Yeah, of course, like the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah, I, I've traded it a couple of times as well. So, yeah, yeah. And now we're moving on to something very, very, very different, Michael. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Because we we are moving our focus to Africa, mm. uh, probably a continent that we talk too little about in this podcast. Um, but uh, we've had a coup in the country Niger. Yeah. Over the year. was it? Yeah, it was last week, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, right now. Um, we're kind of stuck uh, waiting on the response to quite clear calls from both uh, the West African Economic Forum. ECOWAS. Yeah. ECOWAS, yeah. Economic Community of West African States, mm. uh, governed by Nigeria, basically. Yeah. Uh, so let's listen to a soundbite from the meeting in ECOWAS with their sort of what they're calling for in Nigeria. In the event the authorities' demands are not met within one week, take all measures necessary to restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger. Such measures may include the use of force. Niger is the right pronunciation. I I said Niger. No, never mind. Mikkel, um, let's try and understand the backdrop here. Um, a coup in Niger, um, big country, more or less in the middle of Africa, just uh, north of the um, rainforest. And it, Mikkel, is this another proxy Russian Western conflict or what is it? Yes, it is essentially. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Niger was one of the, the, the last countries in this region not to be completely infiltrated by the Wagner group. Uh, and so this is this is widely seen as as a part of the the ongoing uh, French Russian rivalry in this region, which which sounds a bit odd if you look at a map. Why would France and Russia, two uh, globally declining powers, be, be the main forces in the region? But for historical reasons, they are. Uh, and Russia is very active. They held an African summit last week as well, or the week before. 
and Russia, Russia is very active. Uh, have a lot of mercenaries in in, in the neighboring countries to Nigeria. So Nigeria was sort of the the, the last democratic stronghold here. Um, why is this interesting? Um, I mean, first of all, Nigeria isn't an economic powerhouse, so it's not it's not like they're they're going to influence world markets or any certain commodity. But first of all, they're a, a part of the route towards Europe, mm. so they they are. A, a, a close companion to the EU or cooperation partner to the EU on migration. They take back take back a lot of migrants who end up in Libya, where where where, where no one knows what what's happened, uh, where what what's happening. So that's one factor. If if Nigeria is now ruled by a, a Russian uh, a puppet regime, they might open up the floodgates basically yeah. uh, for, for for immigrants, which is a very big issue for Europe if that happens politically as well. Second of all, um, obviously. As you mentioned, it's it's a part of this ongoing rivalry in the region between the the, the Russian back states um, who are employing Wagner uh, mostly, and 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 the the French uh, supportive states. I mentioned when, when we talked about the Prigozhin coup that that the the, the failed Prigozhin coup was really bad news for uh, for uh, uh, ISIS. Yeah. Uh, this is also really bad news for ISIS uh, if they have any aspirations in Nigeria because Wagner is going to get involved in Nigeria finally and they're, they're going to have a much tougher stance on, on ISIS than, than, than French mercenaries or, or, or French soldiers. So this is extremely interesting. It's called a rift, it caused a rift in the ECOWAS uh, where basically all of the, the, the coast countries are... Uh, 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 backing the line that we just heard from Tinubu, yeah. uh, the, the Nigerian president, uh, and the Sahel countries, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, are taking a stance against this. We're not going to see a war. None of these countries have any power or any uh, any opportunities or any desire to get involved in uh, invading Nigeria. So, so the, this is maneuvering to to show support in the hope that there are still elements of the Nigerian power base and the society that st- oh. still support President Basum, who was toppled. I find that very hard to believe. I think they, the, the the colonels who toppled him would have a very uh, very clear backing from from key partners essentially overseas, and that's uh, that's going to be it. Uh, and it's 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 a strategic issue for the West uh, and potentially a very real issue for for Europe. Yeah, and timing wise, it's pretty interesting ahead of what has been labeled as peace talks in Jeddah uh, between Ukraine and Russia. But, Michael, let's um, just point out the facts here. Russia will not even be present in no, Jeddah. No, no, I mean, uh, it's, 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 it, it was it was being posted all around the net. There's, now the peace talks are coming and we're going to have a peace. I mean, it's, it's not much of a peace talk if only the, the, the one side is there. I mean, <laughs> that's uh, not even at the end of World War II. <laughs> even no. then, you had both sides there. So th- this is a continuation of the Copenhagen meeting that took place a few kilometers from here a couple of months ago. Um, and it's basically a, a Western attempt to, to both uh, set the frame for upcoming peace negotiations and to, to, to muster an alliance of global South countries behind Ukraine. Mm. Uh, Brazil, for example. Brazil, mm. uh, India, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, uh, etc. So, so that that's the main effort. Um, it's possible that China will have some observance, uh, whether disclosed or not, and mm. there will be some some discussions with with Saudi Arabia as, uh, as intermediary. Um, but 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 these are not these are not peace talks, and we're not in, not anywhere close to to either a ceasefire or peace in Ukraine. Sadly, no. I uh, I tend to agree and. Um, Great that you <laughs> uh, clarified this for the audience. Um, I, I think a lot of, of misreporting was seen mm. on, on on this topic. Emil, um, on the topic of China, you mentioned that they uh, could uh, decide to, at least um, behind the curtains, um, uh, participate in this Jeddah conference. Uh, we, we've seen uh, Chinese 
moved towards a so-called steel cap yeah. uh, over the past 10 days here, Emil, um, alongside continued pump and dump rhetoric yeah. in, in the state yeah. media, but yeah. no action. Yeah. So so what do you make of, of, of the Chinese political picture right now and the prospect for this fiscal package that everyone hopes for? If you take the last part first, I think mm. the the fact that they put in a steel cap whilst also you know, pumping rhetoric about we're going to do uh, a fiscal stimulus and whatnot. Mm. It's sort of an acknowledgement that they know that the, say, the construction investment usual uh, trade book is basically pathological. Yeah. And they don't want to boost the real estate bubble or the, the you know, the you know, bridges to nowhere uh, <laughs> tendency, which they, yeah. which they tend to. But on the other hand, they, they, they they also have you know the 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 credit problems domestically which mm-hmm. they sort of have to attend to and usually they get you know it's that's how the local governments in china usually get their their funding and they're at least locally deeply indebted so that that's that's sort of the balancing act that they're they're embarking on um but i think on behind the curtains and this is difficult to to really to really extract anything uh, worth like anything concrete from but we've seen a foreign minister who's gone and then he got yeah. fired after yeah. a month right and you see a new a new governor of people's bank of china yeah. and i would wager that there's a large perhaps um more or less silent uh group in the in the in the communist party uh, uh with roots in shanghai who are really uh dissatisfied with the current trajectory mm. they want to see uh, they want to see action on the manufacturing front and uh well that's that's sort of that's sort of uh, what's going on i think at least that's that's what i can gather perhaps perhaps you guys have something to add to it no just 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 a long-term uh, opinion here it, it's it's really really tricky for, for for government to decide how much steel you need i mean it's mm. it, it brings back <laughs> back tastes of, of, of uh, yeah. chinese or soviet five-year plans i mean this yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's the wet dream of any political scientist to be able to sit around the table and plan okay we need this amount of, of steel mm. for the coming <laughs> five years but but that, that that's one of the main reasons why the soviet union couldn't keep up because it's simply impossible to to forecast uh, uh, just how much steel you need over the coming five years so it's uh it's a very very tricky course this yeah even if you go back to the 30s was actually something that the germans did yeah. right yeah, yeah absolutely. Hitler was absolutely. actually really managing steel imports from exactly it yeah. doesn't really work long long term no no it doesn't <laughs> it's, 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 it's just too hard yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, let's not go down that rabbit hole um, <laughs> no. but uh, if, if we look at the commodity space emil uh we've uh, openly taken a bit uh, on the broad BCOM index, so the Bloomberg yep. Broad Commodity Index. Yep. We've entered longs in the XLE, uh, mm. so the mm. broad energy space in in US equities. Uh, we've entered uh, longs in in the material space in, yep. in the US. It's yep. not been the best week for for that opinion. Um, it no. could have been worse being long uh, shit coins yeah. tech and everything else. <laughs> yeah. um, so on a relative scale. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's still in green territory for us, but yeah. I mean, um, what what do you make of of the broad commodity space at this juncture? Is is the true risk that China does not deliver? Yes, that's yeah. a trap. Yeah. That's definitely a trap um, for for broad commodity pricing. No doubt about it. Um, but on the but on the other hand, I think I think I think uh, the Chinese elite is somewhat aware that you know 
they're basically undermining their own credibility here. So I think they will have to produce something of of note, and that's why markets have have responded the way they have. Mm. Um, I also think that the divergence in the in the cyclical front and in the manufacturing sector across mm. different regions is sort of fueling some uncertainty in 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 the, the rebound, if you like, that we are that we are currently riding. I think it's super obvious that it's the U.S. who's primarily uh, beating expectations here, and in Europe it's a bit more. You know, Switzerland looks really <laughs> to be troubled. On the other hand, you see um, Sweden surprising a bit. So it's yeah, yeah. it's 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 a weird juncture. This. So uh, yeah, that that's sort of how how I look at it. Yeah, Sweden's service PMI rebounded from roughly forty six to fifty two in yeah. one month. Um, um, either. Either Sweden has posted a tremendous comeback, or else Swedbank, uh, the <laughs> survey re- re- responsible bank here, yeah. needs to uh, figure out what's wrong with this crap survey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's either or. Oh, I, and I'm not sure yet. No, and you, yeah, I learned it through you while I was on a plane. I nearly, nearly fall, fell off my seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. Um, I, I, I mean. We've we've seen similar issues with, uh, for example, the Danish or the Norwegian PMI because the sample yeah. group is so small. Yeah. Um, I mean, we we essentially don't have more than ten or twenty companies no. making enough money to be uh, surveyed no. and stuff no. like this. No. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Uh, so take it with uh, a grain of salt, if not a truckload of salt. Yeah, this yeah, number yeah. from Sweden yeah. so far. Yeah. Um, I think uh, <laughs> those were the words for for this edition of uh, of the Macro Sunday podcast. Yeah. It's safe to say that we have uh, plenty of things to discuss e- uh, each week uh, in the, in this uh, independent macro and geopolitics podcast. Mikkel Rosenwald, a great pleasure to see you. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Alan. Just uh, just yeah. a quick note for those of you who are listening through through the podcast. We're now uh, live on YouTube as well. Yes. So if you're interested in watching three uh, Scandinavian guys in a sauna-like studio, as we hear a lot, uh, <laughs> yeah. you can watch us in there. Yeah. Three obese Scandinavian guys. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it like that. Yes. <laughs> More or less. Directly for Pornhub. Sure. Uh, we will not label it that. That's the next time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in any case, we'll be back next Sunday. Uh, with a tremendous guest, Bob Elliott, uh, oh, yeah. former uh, co-CIO of the Bridgewater Hedge Fund. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, one of the best macro strategy guys out there, uh, mm-hmm. and he will be joining us for a discussion on what to do if the US uh, yield curve continues its steepening, uh, as we've seen here over the past couple of days. Yeah. Remember um, that this is an appetizer uh, to the load of material that we produce at Steno Research. Um both uh, within the geopolitical field uh, uh, from your team, Mikkel Rosenwald, and uh, within uh, finance, macro, uh, strategy, etc., uh, with yep. you, Emil, um, yep. in charge of that team. Yep. Um, remember with that we have an exclusive offer. If you want to just join the club at yep. uh, stenoresearch.com, you can use macro30, so macro30, um, to get 30% off your subscription at stenoresearch.com. We will leave uh, the link to uh, the subscription page in the show notes. Emil Mikkel, great to see you. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, we'll see you again next week in the Macro Sunday podcast. <laughs>